Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. There are times in life, Michel Foucault wrote in his celebrated History of Sexuality, when the question of knowing if one can think differently than one thinks is absolutely necessary if one is to go on thinking at all. The possibility of thinking differently confronts us in the past, where Michel Foucault sought it as an historian, but also in other cultures, in older forms of science, in children, and even in the extraordinary variety of thought styles we find amongst those we think of as our familiars. How these different modes of thought come to be, how they change, and how they relate to one another are the subjects of this new four-part idea series by David Cayley. It is based on interviews recorded at a symposium on modes of thought held at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education in the fall of 1993. The main organiser was David Olson, a professor at the Institute and a long-time student of the relations between reading, writing and thinking. He and his colleagues brought together historians, psychologists, anthropologists and philosophers interested in this theme. Subsequent episodes will look into the psychology of meaning and the history and philosophy of science. Tonight's programme is about the modes of thought associated with reading and writing. David Cayley. In 1928, a young American classicist called Milman Parry submitted a surprising thesis to the Sorbonne on the origins of the Iliad. Western civilization for centuries had revered Homer as a writer. Parry argued that the construction of Homer's poem showed him to have been a bard, an epic reciter. As evidence, he pointed to the repetition of stock phrases, the wine-dark sea, the rosy-fingered dawn, the gray-eyed goddess, Hector, tamer of horses, and argued that these were the memorable elements out of which an oral singer stitched together his song, never twice the same. Later, Parry and his assistant, Albert Lord, traveled to Serbia, where they found and recorded contemporary singers who recited epics to the rhythm of a stringed instrument called the guzla, just as he imagined Homer had fitted his hexameters to the strumming of the lyre. Parry's demonstration that what had been assumed to be a literary creation was actually an oral epic made writing visible in a new way. Literacy had been virtually a synonym for civilization, and because it was taken for granted, its particular features, its partialities and limitations, were not noticed. The discovery that this supreme masterpiece had been created and transmitted by guilds of illiterate singers put a boundary round literacy and revealed writing as only one of the countries of the mind. Anthropology's encounter with contemporary oral cultures had the same effect. Once writing could be seen in this new way, questions about the consequences of writing, questions that hadn't previously come up, now began to seem urgent. Harold Innes, working at the University of Toronto, identified what he called the bias of writing, he denounced the stifling authority which printed texts acquire over living thought. He claimed that education had become, in his words, the art of teaching men to be deceived by the printed word, and declared his allegiance to the oral tradition. Marshall McLuhan, working after Innes, 
suppose that our senses are profoundly altered by the entrainment of the eyes to files of printed letters. Classicist Eric Havelock investigated the concept of justice in ancient Greece and concluded that abstract moral principles depend on writing. Justice in oral society, he claimed, was conventional and concrete. Only when writing reduced the demands on memory and the breath of speech was fixed as words on a page could people begin to imagine the existence of a realm of ideas. Psychologists like Alexander Luria and anthropologists like Jack Goody also contributed to framing what might be called the literacy hypothesis. It held, in summary, that literacy had profound cognitive effects and that a great historical watershed divides oral and literate thought styles. Then came the counterattack. Harvey Graff's 1979 title, The Literacy Myth, gives the flavor. Critics argued that the literacy hypothesis was overblown, too general, too reductive, too deterministic. They put forward cases in which literacy seemed to have no noticeable effect on cognition and pointed to others in which supposedly literate capabilities seemed to be present in individuals and societies without writing. David Olson is a professor of psychology at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and the organizer of the colloquium on which this idea series is based. In a new book called The World on Paper, he has tried to restate the literacy hypothesis in a way that acknowledges this critique and answers it. He believes that writing, in certain circumstances, does generate new modes of thought. It does so by creating problems of interpretation that are peculiar to written texts. Writing, he says, makes speech visible, and this leads readers into a new awareness of language. My view, which has been influenced by work by Roy Harris, a British linguist, is that writing isn't just speech put down. Writing is a visual mode of communication which can serve as a model or a theory, if you like, for our speaking, so that we come to think about our speech in a new way. We start to hear our speech in terms of the writing system. Now, it's counterintuitive to say that we don't have consciousness of speech because we do speak, and we as literate people are quite conscious of our speech. You know, I, I know when I'm being a direct or bold or overstating or understating or metaphorical or literal and all of those things. I know that about my speech. The hard thing to imagine is that without our acquaintance with writing, much of this awareness of our speech would be absent. We would be still competent speakers, and we could still use our uh, language for argument and description and so on. But we wouldn't be conscious of the properties of language that are brought into consciousness by our writing systems. And those properties are things like what knowledge of what a word is. Can you believe that uh, cultures without writing, by and large, don't have a concept of a word? They know names and so on, because those are represented in the culture in other ways. But the notion of a word as a syntactic element in a sentence is not known to people who are not conversant with the written language. David Olson finds evidence for this idea in his work with children who are learning to read. Children, too, he says, are unaware of certain features of their speech 
until it is modeled as writing. And recognition of this fact has dramatically changed researchers' understanding of what reading is. Reading isn't what we thought it was. We always thought children were speakers of a language. And so reading was really nothing other than seeing how those marks were marks of the things that they knew about their speech. They knew how to talk, so it was just seeing how the marks, you used marks to represent what they knew. Well, the remarkable thing in, the, in reading research in the last couple of decades has been that children don't know about their own speech. They know how to talk about things, but they don't know how to talk about words for things. So that one of the big discoveries for children when they learn to read is what a word is. Young children think that written marks must correspond to things rather than corresponding in any way to words. So if there are three things that you're talking about, let's say three little pigs, which is one of my examples, they would think that if there's three pigs, you have to have three words, one for each pig. But when they become readers, they realize you don't need to talk just about the pigs. You can talk about the words for pigs. So you might, if the, the sentence said three pigs, you might be able to say that with just two words, three pigs. That's a major discovery for children. It, it moves them from the level of thinking about the world to thinking about their language. Now, if you look back at the history of writing, you see that that's the major achievement in the history of scripts, was to realize that scripts didn't need to designate objects. So, for example, you didn't need 21 tokens for sheep if you had 21 sheep. You could actually get away with, say, two tokens, one token for the number 21 and one token for sheep. That's what created what we call syntactic writing, and that was the kind of writing that actually made writing correspond in some way to speaking. This correspondence, however, is never perfect. Writing can transcribe the words of speech, but it can never capture intonation and other clues to a speaker's intention that are available only in the situation in which the words are actually spoken. For example, writing systems would write down uh, an expression stated in an ironic tone with the same words as something stated sincerely and literally. The writing system doesn't capture not only the ironic tone, it doesn't capture what's thought of as the intentional um, elocutionary force, that's the technical term for this, of an utterance, what the speaker wants the listener to think. It doesn't capture that. It captures what was actually said, but not what was meant or intended in saying it. Now, we try to make up for it by using things like bold face type or underline or stars and stripes and all sorts of marks to, to show that this is really said emphatically, let's say. Or we invent a bunch of speech act, so-called speech act terms like implied, inferred, suggested hesitantly, and so on. Those kinds of expression. We lexicalize, we put into words the manner of speaking so that it, it doesn't misrepresent so far as possible. David Olson thinks the fact that writing is ambiguous and open to conflicting interpretations has had an extremely important bearing on the history of reading. In classical Greek civilization, the feeling that writing could not properly stand alone kept it closely tied to oral performance. The civilization of ancient India was extremely wary of writing. During the Christian Middle Ages, reading remained an encounter with the living word. Interpretation was guided both by divine inspiration and by ecclesiastical authority, 
Only very gradually did the idea emerge that a text can be an autonomous, self-standing source of knowledge, capable of being understood on its own terms. The turning point, David Olson believes, came with the Protestant Reformation. This is how he described this change to me in an interview first broadcast in 1988. In the Reformation, in the Counter-Reformation, there was an, a new and different understanding of the relationship between a text and its interpretation. As is well known, Protestantism was built on the notion that a text simply means what it says, and that any other interpretations were fanciful, dreams of the imagination, was how Francis Bacon characterized it. And Luther called any interpretations tradition and dogma. And he said that what a text means is what it says, and all the rest is mischief. Well, that distinction it certainly didn't originate with Luther, and it wasn't exclusive to Protestantism, of course. It presumably grew out of a rabbinical tradition, and it spread through the Catholic world just as quickly as it spread through the Protestant world almost, or pretty well. But the distinction came to be seen as justifiable. You could actually distinguish what the text actually said from its interpretations. And the interpretations came to be seen as accretions, as additions, as fanciful constructions, mental things. Well, when, that was, when text came to be seen that way, and I'm not saying that they saw it correctly, I'm just saying that they came to see it that way, they also realized or came to believe that the world could be treated that way. There were some things about the world which really could be observed because they were in the world, just in the same way that Luther said, there are some things that you can find in Scripture because it's really in the text. Well, and so for Francis Bacon, but not only for Bacon, for the whole host of 17th century scientists, Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, the charge that they felt that they had was to find out the facts about nature, which could be derived from diligent observation. This is an expression of William Harvey's, who discovered circulation of the blood. He said that all that's required for our science is diligent observation. And Francis Bacon said, all that we need is the statement of observed facts. Look at nature as if it's a text, find out what's really written there, and exclude all this stuff that, that had been tied in with science in the past, which he now started to see or take to be mere interpretation. The idea that texts had a plain, objective meaning led people to try to create texts that had this quality, texts that indicated within themselves how they were to be understood. Writers began to worry about how slippery and deceptive words could be. John Locke called them a perfect cheat. Certain it is, Francis Bacon said, that words as a tartar's bow do shoot back upon the understanding of the wisest and mightily entangle and pervert the judgment. Controlling the inherent ambiguity of printed words by the cultivation of an exacting and explicit style became a preoccupation. The British Royal Society, founded in 1666, urged its members to write with what its charter called mathematical plainness. The modern prose essay was born. Beginning in the 17th century, uh, uh, um, writing tended to become more thematic, which is to say you might write a whole book on a single subject. Locke's uh, essay on understanding would be a case in point. You take a problem and you look at its aspects and its the implications, and you try to trace it through to make a, 
a deep analysis of a single topic, relating every utterance to every preceding utterance, so that you can build a deep analysis of a topic rather than the kind of uh, structure you have in uh, narrative text where you report one event, then another event, then another event, and another event. You see, it's a hierarchical organization rather than a linear, episodic organization. So that kind of writing, I think, comes also from careful attention to what a statement means and what an author means by that statement in a particular context. The faith that writing could give unambiguous expression to ideas was one of the keystones of the modern era. Texts, so long as they were written soberly and read sensitively, were taken as stable centers of meaning. Books, as Northrop Fry once joked, always say the same thing. During the course of the 20th century, this faith has come undone. It is by now a firm article of postmodern belief that texts are inherently inexhaustible and therefore inevitably subject to conflicting interpretation. The very idea of meaning, according to French philosopher Jacques Derrida, for example, is a kind of nostalgia, since meaning is present in writing only as what he calls a trace, a vanished presence whose final significance can never be ascertained. David Olson agrees that writing can never be entirely unambiguous. Writing can't do what it has pretended it could do. I mean, we have thought that we could sort of make a detailed inventory of the world through our writing, through our books, our encyclopedia, and so on. And the Protestant way of reading, as I referred to it, the, and the early modern scientific stance to writing really had that as its agenda, to nail down the particulars, that writing could actually allow us to state all the truths of the world, and we could state them so they weren't open to interpretation. That was the goal. Well, in the 20th century, we realized that this isn't practicable. We aren't, we'll never succeed in the enterprise of nailing meanings down, for example. Writing is always open to reconstruel, reinterpretation, reconsideration, and so on. The impossibility of determining the final meaning of texts does not lead David Olson to conclude either that all interpretations are equal or that interpretation is impossible. It's this very difficulty, he thinks, which has led to the conventions of explicitness and clarity which characterize the literate mode of thought. We should therefore, he says, recognize the massive historical achievement of which we are the heirs and hold all the harder to the modern project of stabilizing the meaning of texts through careful reading and writing. Even if we realize that, say, statements don't say exactly what they mean, they can never quite bring it off, we still believe that we would prefer to live in under the rule of law that, uh, rather than the rule of men, for example. We'd prefer to live under the rule of law, which is to say statements of what our rights are and statements of the conditions under which we can be found uh, negligent or guilty or something. We prefer to have these as laws, as statements, as agreed on documents. Even if we realize that so many of these decisions get pushed up to the Supreme Court where we, where we then ask the Supreme Court to say, well, just what did the law mean? You know, we realize that even the best of our laws are going to be subject to negotiation, to appeal, to somewhat reconstruing in, in different contexts and so on. So we sort of live with this as a, 
as the boundaries of our dilemma. What I think would be tragic is if people lost their regard for the importance of these written, whether written law or written agreements or written statements or written theories. The, if we lost faith in the documentary world, I do think we would be in jeopardy because at least with a document, they're public, they can be appealed to, they, they, um, they're frozen in a kind of way. Whereas, say, uh, oral promises are, are not. I mean, an oral promise, you don't know exactly what was said. You thought you knew at the time that it was granted, but there's n it's, not a, it's not part of a document, it's not part of a public thing that can be appealed to in the same sort of way that a written documentary culture can be. Retaining this culture, says David Olson, means retaining the skills on which it rests. He recognizes that there are other equally valuable modes of thought and that the ability to make and interpret texts should not monopolize education to the detriment of other abilities. But he believes, nevertheless, that for certain purposes there is no substitute for textual literacy. One of the menaces, I think, in educational thought is that children differ, we say. Children think different ways. And there's a, there's a bit of truth to that. But I think it important that it be recognized that to do science, say, or to do serious analytical study, there is only one way, and that way is through this careful reading and careful writing. finds the origin of contemporary scientific and analytical modes of thought in the efforts of modern writers to create autonomous, self-explicating texts. The second speaker in tonight's program is interested in the relationship between reading and the modern sense of individual selfhood. Brian Stock is a professor of comparative literature at the University of Toronto and the author of Implications of Literacy, published in 1983. He told the Conference on Modes of Thought, on which I've based these programs, that any Western history of reading must begin with St. Augustine, the fourth-century bishop and father of the Church. Augustine, he says, was the world's first self-conscious reader. He's the first person in history who talks about the problem as a problem. There are very few writers in Greek antiquity or Latin antiquity, or Jewish antiquity, which is relevant here because the Jews were, of course, students of scripture. There are very few writers in either of those of three traditions who talk forthrightly about what it's like to be a reader, how it influences one's thoughts about oneself or a whole range of other issues, and how, how reading and thinking differ from, say, what we call logico-deductive thinking that doesn't require reading, for example, mathematics, or uh, other types of intellectual or emotional experience, like music, or simply standing you know, in a green field and looking at the flowers. You know? So Augustine is very concerned with this kind of problem. He's concerned, for example, with the problem of what happens when I go into that field of flowers and I have in my mind a description of a field of flowers from a previous writer. Do I look at those flowers, so to speak, through the grill of what I know beforehand, or do I, do I simply look at them and blank out that knowledge? 
Reflection on the experience of reading led Augustine to see that the self is, in a sense, a story we fabricate from our experiences. The elements of our experience take on meaning as we are able to incorporate them into the story we are continuously telling about ourselves. This was a very different view, Brian Stock says, than earlier philosophers had put forward. The ancient thinkers like Aristotle and Plato conceived the self as a problem of the soul, basically. The self and the soul are related problems, and it's very difficult to, to separate the one from the other. And in conceiving the self in that way, you approach the whole question rather philosophically, uh, and uh, rather than through a story or through an experience, whereas Augustine had just the opposite view. I think his view was that the self really only exists or comes into existence as we reiterate through our memories the sort of narratives or stories that we've lived through. In other words, the self is rather inseparable from the experience of the self in time. And it's not by accident that two of the most important chapters of the Confessions are on memory and time. And they were his way of trying to sum up his thoughts about what we can know about the self, uh, either by remembering things about ourselves or through a much more, more abstract consideration of what we really know about temporal existence in general. He shifted the whole question towards an experiential kind of understanding of the self. And, and I think that, that made autobiography and personal narrative very important for a whole series of reasons which were taken up by writers who followed him, to mention only two who are very well known, Rousseau and Freud, uh, both of whom use autobiographical writing about the self in different ways and for different reasons, but who also who belong to, I think, a tradition of thinking which is traceable to the insights of Augustine's confessions and to some of his other writings. Augustine's sense of the self as a unique story unfolding in time was a result of his reflection on the experience of reading. But Augustine was still, in many ways, a man of the ancient world, and therefore a man for whom the spoken word remained primary. A truly textual sense of the self, Brian Stock says, is only evident a millennium later in the figure of the 14th century poet and scholar Francesco Petrarch. Reading and writing for Augustine are a means of self-discovery, for Petrarch, they're a means of self-invention, a technology of the self, as Michel Foucault says. Petrarch is a much more self-conscious seeker after written knowledge and texts and ancient thought. And, you know, he positions himself in time in a certain kind of way, and he builds his structure of the self. It's almost like creating a novel or a book. He builds it through his letters. He's always writing something for an audience. Uh, his whole conception of the audience is a reading audience. And uh, although he verbalizes much of what he does in his poetry and elsewhere, he's always writing with a reading audience in mind, and he's always constructing his books out of previous books. Petrarch quite deliberately constructs himself out of others' literary remains, very notably Augustine's. In a letter which has sometimes been offered as evidence that Petrarch is the first modern man, he describes his ascent of a peak near his home called Mount Ventoux. When he reaches the summit, 
he seeks the meaning of his experience by taking from his rucksack his constant companion, Augustine's Confessions, and reading. Indeed, scholars have lately discovered that Petrarch altered the date of the letter in which he describes these events to correspond with a significant date in Augustine's life. What Brian Stock sees in these acts of literary self-creation is a harbinger of the modern sense of self. Our notion of individualism and of the modern notion of the self is of an autonomous self. That is, that each of us is a kind of individual and that if there is a self, it's myself or yourself or someone else's self. And that, that idea is in Augustine, but it's both proposed and criticized, if you understand what I mean. He both suggests that, that this is the case, but he suggests that if you accept that naively, you're only giving a part of the story, and in his view, not the most important part. Whereas I think for Petrarch in the 14th century and for what you might call modern writers after Petrarch, I think of Montaigne, for example, or, uh, or Descartes, or if you go forward in time to 19th century writers who are very conscious of themselves as, as individuals. And, and I think it's particularly true of authors that this notion of the self becomes the predominant one, and it's no longer criticized in the same way. I mean, one can find critics of it, but I think it's accepted as a basis for the modern Western notion of the self. And it contrasts, in that sense, with notions of the self that develop out of Buddhism or other Eastern philosophies in which the notion of an autonomous self is not the primary idea at all. In fact, it's considered an illusion. So Petrarch, you see, comes really at the turning point of this, in my view, uh, and he is the first modern in that sense. Brian Stock suggests that there is a connection between a certain kind of textual literacy and a modern style of individualism in which people see themselves as, in effect, their own authors. Myron Tuman, whose remarks will conclude tonight's program, thinks that this connection undergoes further modulation during the Industrial Era. Myron Tuman is a professor at the University of Alabama and the author of A Preface to Literacy. He believes that with industrialism, a new kind of reading came into existence. Industrial culture engendered the notion of depth and power and probing and the whole metaphorical world of what I call verticality of up and down. It's essentially a 19th century world where true work, important work, goes away from the surface, either going much deeper, digging deeper, or going higher, lofty, in terms of inspiration. So reading, essentially, the whole notion of reading as moving away from normative uh, communication, from, from the understanding of the group. At a very practical level, in terms of classroom pedagogy, we see a fundamental change in the late 19th century. For the very first time, reading becomes defined in a totally new way. Up until about 1900, Reading as taught in schools meant the ability to recite. And the common test of reading was having someone read a passage aloud with a book open in, in front of them, recitation. And it was considered a better reading if someone had memorized the passage. There was no testing of comprehension. 
I believe the first test, the first written test of reading comprehension, I believe, somewhere in the early 20th century, about 1911. Of course, when they started giving these tests, they discovered something incredibly shocking, which we should have anticipated, and that is people who had been reading, or people who, who we had thought had been taught to read, in fact, couldn't comprehend very well. It wasn't because they all of a sudden were poor readers, but, but what happened was a whole, new under, a whole new sense of what reading was. Reading, according to this new sense, meant the ability to form one's own view of a text. Previously, Myron Tuman thinks, it had meant the successful assimilation of the commonly accepted view. What had changed was the nature of knowledge. Practical knowledge before the industrial era was widely shared, and people learned what they needed to know from those around them. Industrial production, on the other hand, was based on techniques that went beyond common knowledge. Probably one of the key acts of the birth of the modern world were the series of bridge collapses in the 19th century. Because bridge making was something which, here was a technical art which also had its own historical grounds and a kind of common knowledge of craft. People built bridges by, I guess, assuming, I guess one assembled stonemasons and carpenters and the, the general workforce and they went out and eyeballed it and, and put the stones and, put, and laid things down and expected it to work. There was no separate craft of engineering with its own scientific basis. Well, the bridges could not withstand the new loads brought on by industrialization. It was a series of, of, of fantastic bridge collapses in the 19th century, and out of this comes the whole notion of civil engineering and mechanical engineering and engineering schools and, and the whole notion of generating knowledge which will never be shared by the group and the whole notion of specialization. And for the first time, you have a practical reason for higher education. Whereas before, higher education was largely for socialization and to, uh, to establish a kind of cult and an elite group in terms of religious and secular leaders. Now, for the first time, society really needed mm. highly educated people to do highly educated tasks, work that had a palpable, positive effect on the standard of living, bridges that could support heavy weighted trains. Industrialism and literacy, in Myron Tuman's view, have a complex and in some ways paradoxical relationship. Industrialism shaped literate culture through the idea of reading in depth and through its demand for original and specialized knowledge. But at the same time, literate culture increasingly defined itself in opposition to industrialism. This opposition expressed itself through what can broadly be called the Romantic movement, a movement that Myron Tuman thinks of not just in terms of the arts, but in terms of educational practice as well. It's a movement that can be defined as placing the individual at the center and the whole focus on individual autonomy and the deep sense of the self and the whole notion that the highest expression of cultural productivity is the deeply moved, sensitive, evocative individual. And this is what education should produce and this is sort of the goal of life and that the person who thinks more deeply, the person who has a more complex mode of thought is a better person. Emphasis on the refinement of individual sensibility involved a change in the way educators conceived the relationship between speaking and writing. Private reading had existed for a long time amongst the elite, but the common schools had continued to stress spoken performance of texts 
well into the industrial era. With Romanticism, reading was no longer conceived as the oral imitation of written rhetorical models. The whole notion of speech-making, training of speech-making, uh, in, in a kind of old-fashioned conservative tradition, this was considered a major part of literature. Political speeches appeared in the early anthologies. And McGuffey's Reader has a lot of speeches in it. Once the Romantic period took over in terms of pedagogy, all of this was gradually pushed out. If you go into a high school textbook now that's based upon modern or romantic principles, there are very few speeches. It's an age that sees poetry in the lyric poem as a kind of organic whole in the spirit of Northrop, for example. So, in fact, it was John Stuart Mill that said that rhetoric is heard and poetry is overheard. In other words, the goal of English as a discipline, the goal of writing, isn't so much communication, but expression, the ability to create something that has a kind of self-sustaining essence, a true art object. And this was a radical transformation in education, and it's still with us to a large extent in the field that I work most closely with English composition, although it's being seriously undermined there as well, as all rhetoric is being reborn, and a great deal of new interest in communication and communication theory, rather than poetics and expressive theory. This rebirth of rhetoric is part of what can be very broadly described as postmodernism, using the term in the same comprehensive sense that Myron Tuman has spoken of romanticism. He thinks that it involves a basic change in the definition of literacy. In general, the postmodern period is in fundamental ways in opposition to romanticism. It deals with the metaphor of horizontal experience of webs and planes and of difference, the whole notion of depth and of development, the whole notion of what we might call developmental models of the self, developmental models of society. Anything that is developmental, which is really the essence of 19th century, the whole notion of organic growth, which is at the heart of 19th century thought, all of this is under deep suspicion in the postmodern age because at the heart of developmental thinking is the notion of the evolution from one stage to another and from a simpler to a more complex stage. There is a kind of progression, a kind of forward movement. Once you establish that, then it sets up almost by necessity the notion that some stages are more developed than others. And this is really uh, antithetical to most postmodern kinds of thinking. This suspicion of hierarchy and developmental sequences has engendered a critical attitude towards the skills of high textual literacy. The emergence of this attitude, Myron Tuman says, was one of the reasons that he wrote a preface to literacy. Part of the motivation behind a preface to literacy was to deal with a series of what I can now see, although I perhaps didn't see at the time, what kind of postmodern critiques of modern literacy. Literacy was already well on the way to being seriously undermined in the 1980s when the book was written. Most of the work on literacy in the 1980s was either implicitly or explicitly critical of the notion of, of the literate text and literate experience as somehow privileged and special and something worthy of emulation. And this is odd because even in my own field of college education, trying to train people to become writers to, to try to achieve higher standards of literacy, in my own field almost every work in the last 25 years has had a major impact upon the profession has been a work that at some serious level has undermined the notion of the privileged status of the traditional complex written text. 
and uh, that goes back to William LaBeouf's work on the speech patterns of inner city youths. It involves uh, Amina Shaughnessy's work on the writing skills of uh, underprepared college students at the City University of New York, in which she tried to show these that the writings of these students had a kind of formal structure that we ha that we hadn't seen before. It involves uh, Shirley Bright's Heath's work, Ways of Words, where she's trying to show the uh, speech and, and communication practices of, uh, of rural, black and white rural children in South Carolina that had a kind of complexity. All of this sort of comes out of a structuralist approach, trying to show that all sorts of human experiences have, have their own inner complexities with the implicit understanding that we hadn't seen these before. Had we seen them before, we would realize that it's not just literate communication that has this complexity, but all kinds of others. The whole movement was sort of essentially to try to level the field, to make literate text less special, and to make a whole range of other texts more special. So we would break down the kind of higher, lower uh, distinction between special text, literate text, and other kinds of communication. One of the things that bothered Myron Tuman about this depreciation of literacy was that the critics were all people whose careers depended on their ability to sustain complex written arguments. Another was that the definition of literacy that was involved was often loose and shifting. At a minimum, he argued, one ought to distinguish between literacy as a set of elementary decoding skills and what he called problematic literacy, that is, the ability to read and write texts that bring the world of our experience into question. It just seemed to me that it was important to establish the notion of what literacy is. And literacy is something, obviously, something more than the ability to read and write at a simple level. It's more than the ability just to reproduce at a kind of a mimetic level of just word calling, sometimes it's referred to. That, that literacy involves a kind of understanding Conversely, literacy involves the, the ability to compose a text, to, to create a text which commands the attention of strangers, which has ideas embedded in it in a kind of unified way. So reading and writing is a fairly sophisticated, intellectually demanding accomplishment. And I saw it being widely criticized uh, as elitist or this or that, and, and uh, being criticized as being superficial. Myron Tuman got a chance to bring his concerns up with Walter Ong, a writer whose books and essays had influenced the new fascination with oral discourse. Ong had just completed a study of the speech patterns of inner-city kids in St. Louis, where he teaches, a study in which he argued that these patterns represented an achieved oral culture rather than a failure to achieve literacy. So I asked him one time, well, once you recognize this, if you get a student paper that's turned into a class and you, and you can see these oral speech patterns in the paper, how does that affect how you grade it? Should you grade it any differently? And his answer was obvious. That is, he changed the subject. I mean, in other words, yeah. in other words there is no good answer. There is, you can, it's really two different cultural movements. And one is a more postmodern cultural movement, which is, the, which is moving toward recognition of complexity and equality and expanding the notion of what's accepted as adequate, and then one is a kind of traditional modern approach which tries to see hierarchical values. So the modern approach would want to take the inner city oral patterns and label them as less sophisticated, and the postmodern approach would, would want to say, would want to label them different. 
and it's the kind of question that I shouldn't have asked. It put him on the spot, and he was very good at just basically mo moving on to something else because there is no good answer. Oral and literate performance can't be graded on the same scale because there are fundamentally different kinds. Face-to-face -face talk is often governed by the demands of social solidarity. Advanced literacy, on the other hand, contains an element of alienation and reaching beyond the given. This is the type of literacy that Myron Tuman calls problematic. Essentially, at its core, is the ability to create texts in written form that compel, that have some compelling power upon readers. And readers are, by definition, people with whom you have very little social contact. See, most of the time when we speak, in most of our lives, we're speaking with people who are, who are predisposed to like us. If you ask students to speak before people who are not predisposed to like them, they have many of the same anxieties they have about writing. In other words, it's not just writing that creates anxiety, but it's a sense of a skeptical, critical audience. So at the heart of problematic literacy is the ability to create texts which can compel a skeptical audience to take your work seriously, that you can inform them and force them to rethink their own ideas. And conversely, as a reader, it's the ability to take the compelling ideas of others to read through them and then to understand them in a way that causes you to question your own understanding of the world. So problematic literacy has this kind of dialectic sense of, of individuals always in some sort of straining relationship w with the group with which they normally associate. There's a kind of pushing effect, alienating effect in problematic literacy that pushes the individual away from the group constantly at key times. Problematic literacy allows critical distance from the group imperative to conform and belong. But by the same token, it also creates new forms of solidarity and common experience by projecting new social possibilities. Texts can do this, however, only so long as they retain a certain authority, a word which takes its very meaning from writing. Authority in the postmodern lexicon generally translates as imposition, but Myron Tuman emphasizes that recognized authorities can also be a refuge from the tyranny of opinion and the tight embrace of the present. What is it that gives sanction to an individual to oppose his or her group? What enables an individual to stand up? Where does his or her authority come from? Except the kind of the ability to reproduce in his or her own work, his or her own, his or her own utterance, the kind of, to make an appeal to a higher sense, a higher order. In other words, it's been my feeling that the great fear is controlled by the group, of the group. I may use an example from the new book, of Word Perfect, which deals with the literacy in the age of computers, and the whole question of publication. Here's a question which postmodernists you know, see as a source of authority limiting the ability of anyone to write. It's very possible now, technically, to make everyone an author. We have internet, the ability of electronic publishing, sending stuff out over a network. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is through desktop publishing and running something off on a laser printer, taking it to a copy shop, having it bound. So it's very easy to produce your own books in a physical sense. It's very easy to distribute a book-length material through networks. Everyone has it. It seems to me absolutely foolish to think that the perfection of either one of these would somehow free us, liberate us in any sort of way. In my own field, in academics, one has to publish. The key to publishing is that someone in authority recognizes your work as having something worthwhile in it. If we go to the world of self-publication, 
all the traditional authority moves from publishers and editors and tenure committees to the kind of vague notion of a readership, a kind of populist notion of who's reading what. And, uh, and based upon my own experience with mass culture, and I'm not, that doesn't strike me as a liberation. Uh, it's a creative world where the best books, the best essays, the best movies, the best anything is judged strictly by in terms of consumption. Computer technology of the kind that allows self-publishing, in Myron Tuman's view, complements the postmodern critique of literacy. The computer is at once the root metaphor of postmodernity and the tool by which its aims can be realized. Somehow it is this notion, again, of liberation through technology, particularly that the text as the epitome of the modern world is essentially being uh, decentered, destabilized, moved out. Uh, the computer screen doesn't allow for a traditional text. It's, there's nothing fixed in a computer screen, and, and that reading and writing via a computer will somehow move us totally out of the modern world, which was text-based, which was author-centered, which was patriarchal, uh, which was hierarchical, which placed readers in a passive position so somehow that once we change all this, once we make readers and writers equal, once we get rid of the notion of a stable text, and once we just have language that's, that is communicated, that uh, once we move the teacher out of the center of the classroom to, what we, to what's now talked about as a decentered classroom, once we make all these changes, mostly through the computer, some without the computer, that somehow we'll be at a, uh, a liberated state in society and the world in general have found a kind of utopian fulfillment that it's been longing for. Myron Tuman's paraphrase of the postmodern program doesn't entirely disguise his skepticism, but he recognizes that it is based on a moral vision, and he concedes that the kind of literacy he wants to defend does have its limitations. It is wedded to industrialism and to the industrialization of the world. It is the kind of educational, cultural counterpoint of the domination of nature. And it seems to me that everywhere we look, we see that this has to stop, that this whole cultural, historical, economic thrust of the last 200 years, or four or 500 years, if you take it back to the beginning of the Renaissance and the age of exploration, this whole thing has to change. We need a new, more negotiated way of dealing with the natural world and with each other. And that most of our problems that we face really in the world entail people learning how to deal with each other, learning how to get along, and not involving some genius coming up with some great new idea, that most of the problems involve communication and understanding and negotiation. Can these accommodating virtues coexist with the elements of tension, alienation, and transcendence that are present in what Myron Tuman earlier called problematic literacy? He hopes that they can. Otherwise, he fears, something indispensable may be lost. I use the metaphor of the food court in a mall where you go with your family and then you give them each five or ten dollars and you invite them to go eat where they want so you have a curtain, you have a certain illusion of freedom that each person can choose the type of food that he or she wants, Chinese or Mexican or pizza or 
or, or whatnot. But in fact, it's all part of it. It's all mall mm -hmm. food. So in the kind of postmodern world that seems to be inviting people to do what they want, to try all kinds of alternatives, what's critical is a sense of tension, is a sense of, in fact, why is the group permitting this? Or is the group really permitting it? And if there's no tension, if there's no sense of one of what the boundaries are, and in fact, maybe it's because the boundaries have become hidden. It seems, that, you know, and I'm certainly not an anthropologist, but one senses that in certain kinds of primitive cultures, there's very little sense of cultural restraint because there's very little sense of, of possibilities of doing things which are not allowed, that it's only the kind of late 19th century, the Victorian world, where this intense sense of cultural restraint became palpable because in fact, here was a time that people really had opportunities and chances to go beyond. And I think, you know, and, and about 100 years after the height of the Victorian world, we're kind of coming into a new sort of world that invites all kinds of possibilities. And then what happens to the restraints when the restraints aren't there? Are we truly free? And, uh, and of course, my fear is with lots of people doing all their own kinds of things, where does the kind of the ability to formulate a central vision and the ability to direct society come from? On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to part one of Modes of Thought by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. Producer, Alison Moss. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Thank you.